0: I'm Prithvi Vatharajan, and thanks for joining me for this program of poetry exploring the loss of animal species. Red Room Poetry, in collaboration with Durham University Research Fellow Dr Thomas Bristow, developed a series of poetic commissions called Extinction Elegies. Six eminent Australian poets were invited to write new poems responding to the extinction or endangerment of many spectacular local species which are disappearing or have disappeared due to human activity in the Anthropocene. Through elegy, a poetic form typically used to lament human loss, the poets explore our emotions and empathy for losses in the non-human realm. In this episode called, The Loss of Australian Biodiversity, we'll hear from the poets Ali Kobby Eckerman and Stuart Cook who explore the human and ecological contexts for animal extinctions, as well as from Sarah Beckesy, Professor of Environment and Sustainability, speaking about urban design for biodiversity conservation.
1: Wei, my name's Ali kobi and this is my poem, The Extinction of Us. Once we made love in the coolness, under the wilga trees, where wrens flit, making love beside us. Now the trees are dying and a hot wind exposes us, readying for our demise. It's just so wrong. It's wrong to kill an eagle, the old man said, sitting in the dark, staring up at the sky, the embers of the campfire away with the wind. That badness gets stuck inside wrong ways. And I thought about that statement for a while, about how self-justification can be a crime about how every farm is a fiefdom, about how every paddock diverts the natural, about how the need for capital can vile a moral mind. That badness gets stuck inside wrong ways and we see it now in the newspapers and we feel it now in the absence in the sky. It's wrong to kill an eagle, the old man said, staring up at the sky through his tears, orbs of spirit shining where eagles once flew. We sit outside the courthouse to sing our songs. We sing for the justice that is unjustifiable. We cry when the verdict is given. We sit outside the jailhouse to sing our songs. We sing for the massacres that litter our lands. We sit crying with feathers in our hair. When I wrote these poems, I was living out in the bush. I was privileged to have this beautiful property that was gifted me by friends at Inman Valley on the Fleurieu Peninsula in South Australia, just south of Adelaide. And it was a paradise. It was such a blessing to be able to sit there totally with nature. I could keep reminding myself that, you know, my ancestors a thousand years ago, these were the noises that they heard and that there was a remnant of that that I was privileged to be immersed in, just in the listening and the viewing. And I looked out over that old Inman Valley, it was carved by the Ice Age, and the birds would come and sit with me and you could hear the kangaroos going past and sometimes you'd bump into an echidna and they would fill you with joy because they're such joyous, they're funny animals. And then you get in the car and you drive back towards the city and you see the farms, you see the road kill, you start hearing the horns, people don't look so relaxed. You get into the mall or into the busy streets, people don't acknowledge each other, there's no eye contact, everything is breaking down. And it became really evident to me that the modern world and the bush, that there was a void growing. And it's quite a rapid void, I think, and people aren't thinking about it because not everyone has that blessing of a sanctuary of nature to sit in like I did. And I really grieve that. Even when I go back to the mid-north of South Australia where I grew up on a farm. So again, I was surrounded by animals, domesticated or wild. Um, We had trees to climb and a big sky to look at. Lots of things. Food to grow, flowers to pick, wildflowers on the side of the road. And it seems so unimportant these days. Everyone's talking about the house and the and all this material stuff that you have to have. And I really worry for the future generations. I really grieve that they might not know or experience the joys that I held as a kid, like finding a bird's nest. Or if you found a feather, you would actually know what bird it belonged to. Or if you couldn't see the bird, you would hear its call and you would know. So that links some connection between your imagination and the natural world. Inman Valley was always a place too, where there was eagles most times you'd see one, sometimes you'd see two and just before I left Inman Valley there was four. Mum and Dad were teaching their two little ones how to fly and one time I followed them in the car and they were sitting so close and I snuck out the car and I grabbed the camera and I snuck around. I was going to get the best shots ever and brag so loudly on Facebook and the SIM card was missing out of the camera (laughs) and so... (laughs) I couldn't take those shots. And I laughed on the way home that, yes, it's not about this owning anything or recording or document. It's just about the enjoying. And for maybe 15, 20 minutes, the eagles and I, we could see into each other's eyes. And we just stood there with this stupid camera in my hand that couldn't take a photo and just enjoy. And my heart was a better lens. My heart was the camera I needed that day. And, you know, Walla Waroo is one of my totems, the Wedgetail Eagle. And when the story came out about the killing of 406 Wedgetail Eagles in Victoria's Gippsland, I cried and I cried. And if the tears weren't coming out of my eyes, they were coming out of the pores of my skin, my heart was breaking. And to me, that was the biggest crime I've felt for such a long time I guess we've become desensitized to crimes against humanity but leave the eagles alone you bastards and if you're so worried about your lambs build a pen like they do in England you know like you don't have to kill to protect what's yours. And if it starts with nature, that's why we have no qualms about treating people of difference terribly. Because we don't even worry about the environment, the planet that sustains us. It's a real mental illness, I think. I think as a First Nations person, It is really important to stick up for the animals. They're our totems. They're our brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles, mothers and fathers, grandparents. They've always been. I don't think we will ever know in this modern world how close that association used to be. That you could sing a song and they would come and sit beside you. Oh, how I wish I could sing that song to those eagles.
2: My name is Sarah Beckersey and I'm a Professor of Environment and Sustainability at RMIT. Um, I'm really interested in the intersection of different disciplines to address conservation problems, so interdisciplinary conservation. Uh, So My research group has psychologists, physicists, planners, designers, architects, ecologists, all kind of working towards finding solutions to some of the most, I think, pressing environmental problems that we face in cities. And we're really particularly interested in biodiversity and how you bring biodiversity back into cities and let it thrive in cities once again.
0: Um, You've noted that on average, Australian cities are home to three times as many threatened species per unit of area as rural environments. So tell me a bit more about the research you do in urban planning to help conserve biodiversity in cities.
2: Yeah, that's right. You know, it's not commonly known, but Australian cities are facing a really quite extreme extinction crisis, if you like. Um, A lot of the impacts are happening now or have happened in the last 10 years. And what it's to do with is a phenomenon that everyone in any city around Australia would recognise, which is that our cities are just expanding further and further and further into what was once sort of either natural environments or agricultural environments. And they're quite often places that very threatened ecosystems have also been persisting uh, in until quite recently. And so around Melbourne, we've got the Basalt Plains grasslands. It's pretty much Australia's most endangered ecosystem, less than 1% of it left. And it's right in the path of where most of our urban growth is currently happening in Melbourne. The same thing's happening in Sydney. So you've got the Cumberland Plains, which is a really threatened ecosystem that is Exactly where we are developing Sydney, in Perth we've got the Swan Coastal Plain, which is actually you know, a world biodiversity hotspot. You know, over the last ten years we've lost hundreds of thousands of hectares of this ecosystem type, and it's because we are growing our cities right on top of it. Now, it's quite interesting to think about why biodiversity is disproportionately threatened in cities. I find that kind of theoretically interesting in itself. Uh, I think it's partly because cities have been places traditionally where people have thrived and biodiversity has also thrived. You know, they're, they're wet, they're flat, they're fertile, they're great places to be. And so diversity has really sort of come about in those places, sometimes at a higher level than other parts of the landscape. But then we're also systematically targeting those places that are flat, fertile, wet for where we want to be and occupying that habitat.
0: And could you describe for us what an ideal city suburb might look like in relation to biodiversity conservation?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things we've been arguing really strongly for in our group is to try and work out ways of bringing nature back into cities and embedding it in the very urban fabric. And that's quite different to the way we've been thinking about cities until now. I mean, you know, if you think about what an architect or a planner has been tasked with in the past, it's really about how you make people safe from nature, <laughs> you know, how you keep nature out of our cities, how do you create buildings where we can be safe from tigers or whatever it is, you know. We've often seen biodiversity as a bit of a a threat. You'll hear planners talk about the biodiversity problem or they actually call it a constraint layer, you know. <laughs> um. So, But, you know, the thing is in cities, it's becoming more and more obvious to everyone, that the future of cities is going to rely on us actually inviting nature back in. You know, whether it be to cool the city, we know that having a really good urban forest can cool a city by about eight degrees overnight, a city like Melbourne, um, for example, which could prevent a lot of the deaths and sickness that we have from heat waves. Um, whether it's to prevent you know, extreme flood events. Um, there's a whole swag of health and wellbeing benefits to having nature in the places where we work, where we play, where we travel. Um, I think the cognitive development improvements in children is a really compelling one, but you and I, if we live in a street with more trees and more diversity of trees, we'll have less incidence of asthma, allergies, we'll have less of a risk of having heart disease, uh, our mental well-being will be, you know, substantially improved. Having ready access, and we call it everyday access to nature, has an incredible array of kind of health and wellbeing benefits. Um, but, you know, there's also the opportunity to re-enchant people with nature um, and, importantly, to reconnect with Indigenous history and culture because I think this is a really strong opportunity for urban greening and urban nature to tell beautiful stories that are about the Indigenous heritage of the places that cities are built on. What role do you think
0: First Nations communities and traditional knowledge custodians of country uh, might have to play in biodiversity conservation uh, in Australia or in cities in Australia?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm particularly working in the cities space. And um, the whole idea of bringing nature back into cities is something that should involve Indigenous people at every stage. So there's great opportunity, I think, to to involve Indigenous communities in the planning, in the implementation, in the design, um, in the governance of all of these projects that I've been kind of talking about. And so we're doing some work, for example, with Wurundjeri, um, looking at school kids and how we can do sort of habitat creation in schools that can... Um, Promote a certain totem species or a conic species that that school can then adopt. Uh, learn about the cultural stories of that species. Um, and I suppose learn about conservation from an Indigenous perspective or thinking about, you know, you're growing habitat for a bird and ultimately that bird's going to look after you. You know, you're connected in a way that totem species, um, that that's part of the kind of spiritual story. So I think in terms of uh, practical aspects, I think it involves choosing species that we want to bring back to Melbourne that have strong cultural stories. So, for example, the yam daisy, the murnong, or there's a little brown butterfly that um, used to emerge in massive numbers at the start of one of the Rwandary seven seasons. It'd be great to have that happening again in Melbourne and have everyone think, ah, that's the start of that particular season and have an awareness of the seven seasons and the sense of pride that we should all have for that. And the agriculture... So the school we're working with in uh, in Melbourne is um, creating a kind of Indigenous food garden. It's about habitat creation, but it's also about, you know, generating food that the kids can learn how to cook. So, yeah, I think the other practical ways are through having Caring for Country and Indigenous Ranger programs. These are programs that are usually in operation in faraway places. But, you know, there are more Indigenous people in cities in Australia than there are in rural areas. So why not have Caring for Country and Indigenous ranger programs in cities as well?
0: Um, And in your research and work, have you tended to focus on any particular species that are endangered or are you interested in mitigating species loss through urban planning um, and policy more broadly?
2: So both really. Um, But we think that to get design that actually promotes biodiversity, you actually have to start getting into the nitty-gritty of what that biodiversity needs. So for example, we're currently working on a big development site in the centre of Melbourne, Fisherman's Bend, um, to try and think about ways that we could create streetscapes that would invite certain species back in. And we're thinking about, you know, say for example, it was the fairy wren. How could we have fairy wrens hopping around in Fisherman's Bend? Wouldn't that be a great, exciting thing? And so we know what fairy wrens need they need to have you know, a certain type of um, mid-storey that's a bit prickly they can hang out in without being bothered by predators. Um, they need to have a food source. They need to have a water source. So thinking about how you build those things into the urban design. And then they've got certain threats that they can't tolerate. So we'd have to work out how to avoid having cats, for example, in Fisherman's Bend or having curfews on cats or cats indoors. There are precedents for that happening. Um, and you could do that for every species that you wanted to try and design for and ultimately bring back an ecosystem to a site.
3: Initially, even before the project started, I've always been drawn to potteroos just because they're, you know, impossibly cute animals. Um, but when I started thinking what to write about, I wanted to write about something in my local area because um, it was important to me that I was actually going to be able to observe the species and the other species that it interacts with. Really important part of the process of writing this poem for me was, I guess what you call a kind of field work, where I did spend a lot of time in scrubland and heathland around the coasts of the southern Queensland and northern New South Wales, writing notes about the habitat of the Pottero and, you know, other things that came to mind in the process.
0: Stuart Cook, reading excerpts from his poem, Northern Long-Nosed Pottero. In the subtropical warmth, the warm-temperate forests,
3: In the tall, open forests, in a range of vegetation types, The dense understories and the dense coastal heaths, Beneath the thick ground cover, the light soils, easy for digging, Here you stand, beneath the heaths, beneath the low gremlin of a jagged shrub, in the dry sclerophyll forests, the wet sclerophyll forests, their dense understories of slicked-up ferns and grasses, occasional open areas, where grass trees surround ferns, heaths and sedges, low shrubs of tea trees clumped in beside the Melaleucas, a sandy loam soil where dense cover is a distinctive feature, a patchwork of habitats and ground cover densities, the long, undulant carpets of a quiet country, Here you are, shrouded in the density of midday, hidden from the revelation of light's harsh blanket, until it begins to fray, until a bright blanket begins to fray into darkness, until bush recedes into darkness, foraging in the open at night, the bush hollowing into a tunnel through a belly of fern, the that, that, that of the open-hearted sand, now, here you stand, now with the rain approaching, The patient fluffy sand pitted with ants' nests. The patient ground will sing like a web of notes. And oh, those brilliant bones of paper bark. An animal appears, numerous and singular. Over the vast, shuddering universe an animal appears. A nugget of night darker than night darts across the track. From the depths of time she hops and flies. From the depths of time the animal grows, smelling the air. The animal smells the morning air, her cherry heart pumping. Smelling the morning air, her ancestors warm in her blood. In the sandy sclerophyll heathland, her ancient blood, her long nose. In the sandy sclerophyll, a furry banksia shudders with smells. The twinkling eye of a mind, of a wet blade of grass. Through the heathland, a little bandicoot-like creature. Her brown fur and tail long as a body under the moon. At the edge of night, where the day begins. Looking back from where the ferns begin. A body freezes in a rush of sandy loam. A body gathers around the ebony of two smooth eyes. At the edge of night, the soil parts for your little forepaws. In the forest stillness, they are held like newborns. In the dim light of solitude, where loneliness overlaps with loneliness. Where loneliness becomes your home. Where runways and diggings illustrate your presence. The old ones are disappearing, their great leafy temples. We are felling the last of their leafy temples. What do we say of the spotted quail thrush or the tiny pardalote, of the powerful owl, pygmy-possum or bandicoot, of the tree-frog betong or this long-nosed potaroo All these dimming memories in the heads of our elders, all of our heads slipping from the oldest memories, of all the marsupials, one of the first described by settlers, Your early encounters with the spread of settlement. Before the acres of devastated habitat, I can't watch. The destruction of country, community after community. Marsupials off the potteroidae, slaughtered by invasion. Broken by highways, by urban subdivisions. And all the associated impacts stemming from that. Flying metal, its mad clamour, cunning dogs and cats. On top of red foxes, livestock, vegetation loss. They're nearly gone, the cool flames for fungal flourishing. Savage fires have come to wipe out the undergrowth, while the Pacific Highway comes snaking down the coast. Down through Bungelung country, a tarmac snake like a horrid bruise. Heavy tarmac slapped over your home in early afternoon, while a hungry tiger quoll rips off your arm. Finding you there, a leg ripped off by a fox. Your skull crushed beneath a Prius, Your shelter's eaten out by giant stock. Only then, the raptors gorge on what they can. Stripped of a body, your soul wanders aimlessly, resting where it can. Homeless but restless, you scatter across the day. Only then, slowly, slowly, you are strangled by invasion. After hundreds of years, the country can barely breathe. In spasms, the air clatters and whirs. The angry spirits welcome you into the earth. There's a whole range of things, I suppose, that make the Potterroo kind of fundamental to the environment that it lives in. and some of those things I allude to in the poem, it's a really important propagator or distributor of fungi and other kinds of nutrients in its ecosystem. Um, one of the things that I started realising when I started doing some reading about extinction and how different species go extinct is that the Pottero has all kinds of relationships with other plant and animal species. In the ecosystem in which it lives so it has mutually beneficial arrangements with fungi and with other kinds of spores that it distributes throughout its habitat and then it in partnership with other animals enjoys the benefits of those distributed fungi for example um, so it's like thinking about the potaroo it leads you inevitably to think about more than the potaroo to think about it's kind of being knotted up with all these other species in an ecosystem there's a kind of emergent field of scholarship now called extinction studies and particularly helpful to me were people like Tom Van Duren and Deborah Bird Rose who've written a lot about extinction and some of the things I kind of realised as I was reading these people is that it's kind of really easy to think of extinction as a kind of sudden disappearance of a single species as if you know it kind of just pops out of existence and leaves a kind of hole in the world or something like that. But actually what really happens is that extinctions have what's often referred to as a dull edge. That means they work very slowly and painfully, and often in ways that are very imperceptible. And often they involve trauma to all the species that are entangled with the particular species that's going extinct. What is uh, challenging to me isn't that the Red Room have asked us to write elegies for extinction but rather that the Red Room have had to ask us because uh, really I think that this is something that should be written about all the time and that poets should be thinking about very seriously and indeed some are but not enough are and certainly not enough people are either because this is a growing crisis and certainly you know a project like this couldn't be more timely.
0: For more information on Extinction Elegies, and to contribute your own extinction poem, visit redroompoetry.org. You can also hear the whole of Stuart Cook's poem, and all poems in Ali Kobe Ekerman's series, The Extinction of Kindness, on the Red Room Poetry website. Extinction Elegies is produced by me, Pritvi Vatharajan, with music by Guillermo Bartiz with thanks to our poets, experts, the Australia Council for the Arts, and Create New South Wales. Thanks for joining me for Extinction Elegies.